You are listening to a message from Sound Words. To find information about our ministry, please visit our website at soundwords.org. You can also download our free app from iTunes or Google Play to access more great sermons. Let me direct your attention to 1 Corinthians, and while you're turning there, sometime this week, you ought to read through Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 in light of all that's taking place in the world today, not now, but maybe when you go home or sometime this week, you can read through Ezekiel 38 and 39. I did contemplate maybe looking at that This morning, we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians, but a reminder that all things are on schedule, on track. God is sovereign. The nations of the world, and we're privileged to live at a period of time when we see clearly nations like Russia, China, the European Union, all fitting together. But we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul was at a key time in the Roman Empire. When he writes 1 Corinthians about 55 AD, the Emperor Nero had been sitting on the throne about a year. And within a relatively short time speaking, Nero's going to be dead at 69 AD. So let's just round numbers off and say he's going to reign for 15 years. Paul writing at the beginning of that reign and toward the end of that reign, he will suffer execution at the hands of Nero. But you don't get that as the focus of his letter to the Corinthians. His concern is the church is to be the church. And the two emperors that preceded Nero weren't much better than Nero. So it's not like, well, Paul's at a good time He would tell the Romans at the end of that letter that now your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. Live every day expecting the return of the Lord. But, you know, Paul was dead almost 30 years before John wrote the book of Revelation. And so you realize he didn't even have all the information that we have available to him. And now 2,000 years of church history... And here we are, and the concern for us is to be the church that God says we are to be, no matter what is going on in the world around us. The number one responsibility for the church is to be the church. I think of that as I look at different parts of the world today and think, well, what about believers in that particular location? What about believers that are enduring the loss of everything and such pressure and so on? And reminded, well, they have to be what God has called them to be, regardless of the circumstances around them. And so we have to maintain our focus on the word of God, to be the church that God intends us to be, not adjusting to the world around us, but being the church that God has called us to be, regardless of the world around us. For the first nine verses, basically, we had the introduction to the letter, verses four through nine in particular, focused on God's grace. You know, we think of the church at Corinth as a church that has problems and difficulties, and I mentioned the professor that I had many years ago 
who said you ought to do 1 Corinthians earlier in your ministry. You'll cover all the problems and difficulties because Corinth faces them. But yet Paul in those first nine verses talked about God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's graciousness. He had saved the Corinthians. He had gifted the Corinthians. They were going to be blameless, verse 8, who will confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a statement of a church that we note for mainly the problems, but we're reminded this is a church that God has brought together, saved by his grace and functioning, not perfectly, but as his people in that place. In verse nine, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's a verse that uh, you ought to have marked in your Bible and fixed in your mind. God is faithful. He's the one who called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, into a relationship that will go for time and eternity. So whatever happens around us, for good, for bad, that's all right. God is faithful to whom you were called into fellowship with his son, into that unique personal binding relationship with Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. And that leads into verse 10. And that really begins the substance of this letter. And the first major division of the letter is going to go from chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 21. So almost four chapters, he's going to talk about a problem at the church at Corinth. This church that is the recipient of God's gracious salvation that is in existence because God is faithful and called them into fellowship with his son, the sovereign work of God. But it's not a perfect church. It's a church of problems. It's a church of division. And that must be dealt with. So Paul's going to pick up and in verse 10 of chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 21. The subject will be the divisions in the church at Corinth. Sad as it is. We are in fellowship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as a result of the sovereign work of God, and there's division. What is wrong? Well, we're going to cover some of that. Paul begins in verse 10. We're going to look down through verse 17 and just touch on verse 18 of the divisions that are existing in the church. It's not only the church at Corinth, but a reminder. Come back to John's Gospel, chapter 17. Just a reminder of the unity we have in Christ that Paul is talking about. John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus spending this last night with his disciples preparing them for his departure. Subsequently, the church will be established then, shortly thereafter in Acts chapter 2. At John chapter 17, verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And that comes down to today. 
the Apostle Paul believed through the preaching of the immediate disciples of Christ and something down through 2,000 years, that they may all be one. Now note this, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So our work in the world is part of manifesting what God has done for us in Christ. He's made us one in Christ. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Now I come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, and Paul's going to talk about the divisions in the church. And he said, well... How can you be thankful for what God has done in them and bringing them into a relationship of oneness? And now you're going to talk about divisions for the next as we have it in our Bibles through the fourth chapter. Well, it's the correct things. Get them as they need to be, as they must be. The church of Corinth is not primarily divided over doctrine. The church of Corinth is divided over its practice the living out of the truth. You know, it's one thing. We all agree, yes, yes, we're all one in Christ, yes. So that's not a doctrinal issue then. But the practice of it, well, I remember years ago, many years ago now, we were having a division in our church here. And I set aside a whole week and they made appointments and people came in to talk to me. And the first thing they wanted to say when they sat down in my office was, this is not about doctrine. Well, then what are you doing here? What's the problem? But they were telling me why they were going to be leaving. But this is not about doctrine. We are agreed on doctrine, but in the practice of it, in the implementation of that doctrine, we struggle. So the church at Corinth is a practical letter for us. Verse 10 of chapter 1. Now I exhort you, brethren... I exhort you, brethren, fellow believers in Jesus Christ. We are a family together. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That connects to verse 9. Remember, we looked at the repeated every verse. Paul mentions the name of Christ, except verse 5, and there he talked about in him. So I exhort you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree that there be no divisions among you. You be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. We just think that should happen automatically. But it doesn't. That's why the relationship of a family, we are a spiritual family just like you have a physical family. In a physical family, there's sometimes division and disagreements and conflicts. Sometimes you're reminded, but remember, we are a family. So here, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember verse 9, we were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I want to exhort you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're truly saved, you acknowledge the lordship of Christ. 
the challenge of Paul to the Corinthians is to live in light of the fact he is Lord. Now, if he is Lord of the individual believer, he is Lord over the church, he is not in disagreement with himself. So the conflict comes when we acknowledge, yes, I bow and I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then what's the conflict? Well, it's not over doctrine. Because, yeah, we do want to agree on doctrine. But it's on the practice and the implementation. And I'd have to stop and think. I mentioned something, an example from our church family years ago. I have to stop and think because I haven't really thought about what that was really about. You know, somehow whatever the issue was fades away. Because we still, oh yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I believe in the truths of the word of God. But somehow in the implementation and the practice and the outworking of it, we uh, think, well, we're justified. So I am exhorting you, brethren, fellow believers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, all that he stands for, all that he is, We have been brought into fellowship with him. And our fellowship with one another is a result of our fellowship with him. You were called into fellowship. That you all agree. It basically says that you all say the same thing. Is what it literally says in the Greek text. You all say the same thing. Which means you all agree. Now, we disagree, but wait a minute. We have one Lord, we all bow before him, but we don't all agree. We don't all say the same thing. We have disagreements. Well, I got to make a line. There are certain things that we can disagree on. That's fine. There are certain things we can't. Where the word of God speaks, that's clear. There are things, we have a board of elders. The board of elders makes decisions. We decided that we would meet at, 10 o'clock on Sunday morning for our morning worship service. There's nothing in the scripture that says you have to meet at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. But if you come at 1.30, there won't be anybody here, at least not having a service. Well, you could disagree about that, but I willingly submit those things. But we all say the same thing. Basically, we are in agreement That's why we are together as a church family. We agree that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the Savior. He has brought us together in a relationship of oneness with himself and with other believers. I exhort you, I exhort you that you all agree because we have the same Lord. So we ought to be in agreement on the basics, on the truths of the word of God. And the other things we ought to be careful about making an issue of because God hasn't made them an issue. So this is where, for example, years ago, when people would come and say, well, this is not about doctrine, but we're leaving this church. Well, if you're going to find a, you know, you found a place closer to home, blah, 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 whatever. But why is it an issue? You all agree. You all say the same thing. There be no divisions among you. 
I love the way the Spirit of God directs Paul in writing that, you know, when you all agree, it means there are no divisions among you. That word divisions, we get the word scheme from it. It's schismata. You just drop off the ending and you have schism. That there be no divisions among you. No tears. It can be used a variety of ways. Tears in a fabric. Things that would hinder our being effective for the Lord. There be no schisms among you. No divisions. But that you be made complete. As a word that means you've been repaired. That we be all that God intends us to be. It's used of mending broken bones, mending fishing nets in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. We won't turn there, but you can jot it down if you want to look it up. Matthew four twenty-one. They were mending their nets. That's what the word used here. So that you be made complete. Come over to Galatians chapter 6. Just after Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then we come to the book of Galatians. Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, a reminder when Paul has to correct, he often calls them brethren. A reminder, we are of the same family. We have the same Lord. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. You make that one complete. You restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And be careful you don't get drawn into the sin you're trying to help him deal with. Restore. Put it back together the way it's meant to be. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. That you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete, be of the same mind. All the different ways that he expresses it, that you all agree, say the same thing. There be no divisions among you, schisms among you, that you be made complete, that you mend the fabric that's been torn. You mend the nets that have been torn. You fix the relationships. You be those who are functioning in the same mind. We think alike. And that's what brings us together. What are we, like, what are we doing together as a church family? Well, we're in agreement. We think alike. There are places called churches in this city that don't agree at all with what we agree about and think alike about. You be of the same mind. And we have the same judgment because we have the same mind. The same mind means you have the same judgment. The end of verse 10. You have a conviction and you apply that conviction. So you have the same mind and that means that in the practice, we all agree about the truths of the word. This is why I want to be careful when we have disagreements as a church family, we resolve them as a family of believers. 
And I just don't walk out, slam the door, and I'm gone. I was sitting in a restaurant with family members. The family that had left came and looked in the window, saw us sitting there, gathered all their family up, got in their car and left and went, I guess, to another restaurant. Is that what it comes to? Is that what we're all about? We're of the same mind. We have the same judgment on it. We may disagree on the clothes or the hairstyle or where you go for vacation or any variety of things. But on the core issues, we are in agreement. And we think alike. We function alike. Look at verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren. Note how Paul calls them brothers. In verse 10, now I exhort you, brethren. Verse 11, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren. Paul, he is the insider who's an outsider. He's the insider in that he's the one that's led many of these people to Christ. But he's the outsider in that he's not a regular part of this fellowship. Now he's writing back to the church at Corinth. So he doesn't live there permanently. He spent some extended time there, but he's not what you would call a regular part of the congregation. But he has kept up with them. I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, Chloe's family, those connected to Chloe. We don't know anything more about Chloe. And you wonder why. Paul just didn't say, I've been made aware that there are divisions among you. There are quarrels among you. How would you like to be Chloe? And they're reading his letter on Sunday morning. And all of a sudden, oh, everybody's, oh, Chloe. Yeah, she's always been tattletale. And her family, oh, yeah, if it's not there. No, Paul, I want to be honest. Here's Chloe. Here's what she said. There are quarrels among you. Here's what one Greek writer says. It implies wrangling, strife in words, personal contentions, quarreling, bickering. The thing that stood out to me about this word, it appears repeatedly and when Paul makes a list of vices that ought not to characterize believers, quarreling is there. Come back to Romans. That's just before 1 Corinthians. But come to chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 29. And this is talking about those that God gave over to a depraved mind, verse 28, to do things which are not proper. And here is an example of the things that people of a depraved mind who have not been made new in Christ are doing. They're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, full of envy, murder, strife. Well, that's the word we just read about in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 1, translated quarrels, same word, strife, quarrels. Oh, that's characteristic of unregenerate people. And we're reminded that Paul deals and calls these Corinthians brethren. Those who have experienced God's saving grace through Paul, maybe uh, through others as well, been brought together. 
they are brethren, but there are things that are there that are characteristic of those who are not truly regenerate. And a reminder of I have to be firm with myself. There are things in me that I'm not perfected yet. But I have to be sensitive to the word. So when he talks about the strife, the wrangling, that's something that needs to be dealt with. You're in Romans, come to chapter 13. Getting close to back to 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 13. And look at verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness. And we'd say, oh yeah, no, that'd be terrible. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. That's a bad, yeah, they're bad. Not in strife. Oh, that's going on in the Corinthian church. Well, you know, it's not like sexual promiscuity or drunkenness or carousing. Why? It's all put together. It is a manifestation of what I am apart from the saving work of Christ. So I need to deal with it. We tend to categorize sins and then we say, well, these aren't so bad. Well, my strife, my being upset, my quarreling, I have reason for that. Now, what's the doctrine? Now, it's not a doctrinal issue. You try to make everything a doctrine. A doctrine is not a doctrinal issue. Well, then get over it. Stop it. Well, that's easy for you to say. Why is there strife in the church? Why was there strife in the church of Corinth? Paul and other places, but he doesn't say they're unbelievers. But he does say that they are functioning like they should not function, like they must not function, and it must be fixed. And there are numerous other references to this as well. 2 Corinthians 12.20, Galatians 5.20, 1 Timothy 6.4, Titus 3.9, all use this same word. And it ought not to be part of what a believer is. So I know, well... That really irritates me when they do that. Get over it. Stop it. That's what Paul's saying. So come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Chloe and those associated with Chloe, it may be slaves from Chloe's family, it may be family members, we're not told. It doesn't really matter. It's just those associated with Chloe. And there's no reason for Paul to cover. So Chloe, well, I don't like to be put out on the, what do you mean? What you've said is sin, it ought to stop among God's people. And Paul calls them brethren. I have been informed concerning you, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 1. My brethren, there are quarrels among you. Well, they don't belong among us. So stop them. That's the point. He's going to give a series of examples here. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, there are quarrels. Now I mean this, verse 12, so that you're not thinking, well, what does he mean? Well, each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Kephas. I am of Christ. The divisions were over personalities. 
You know, we don't know whether these are actually the divisions or they're just examples Paul is using. Because over in chapter 4, you want to turn over to chapter 4, verse 6. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So that you don't become arrogant one on behalf of another. So it may be that Paul has just used these as an example because he uses himself in verse 12 of chapter 1, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Just examples, what has happened is they have their favorites among those who have ministered to them, those who have taught them. So they begin to play one off against the other. And the simple question is, has Christ been divided? Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So Paul selects himself out. He gives gives an example here. Whether these are all that are entailed or the specific ones. Or maybe like he said in chapter 4, verse 6, I've just applied these to Paul, myself, and Apollos. So you get the point. But at the church of Corinth, there were factions. Which one of these people died for you? Why are you so loyal to them and not to other? Our loyalty is ultimately to Christ. That's the bottom line. Who died for you? Well, Christ died for me. Well, then that's your loyalty, right? Well, of course. But I also, we appreciate those that God has used in my life. I can think back over the years of my training for ministry and in ministry, those that God has used and I appreciate, but I want to be careful that I don't begin to focus on them to the point then that they become a divisiveness because you may think, well, somebody else has been used of God in my life and was used to bring me. And You know, I find, I can just say this generally, I find any time we're going to have an all-church conflict, people are going to leave because they sort of attack together. And then we leave together. But it's not over doctrine. But so-and-so talked to so-and-so and so-and-so, and pretty soon they all agreed that we are here and we're this group and we're this group, this group. And this. But it's not a doctrinal thing. I think it's not a doctrinal thing. But yet... We're all going someplace else and we're all doing this and we just want to be careful. And the Lord sometimes leads his people to another place. That's fine. But I want to be careful and doing with the right attitude. I appreciate I meet people that have been at Indian Hills over different times of the year, come up and are so friendly and talkative and that's the way it should be. If the Lord wanted them someplace else, there are other churches in town. But this idea, well, we left because... I don't know, they're pretty good names in this verse 12. I'm a Paul, Paulus, Kephas, that's Peter. Christ, well, has Christ been divided? Let's get down to it. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? You Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I baptize you in the name of Paul. I baptize you in the name of Apollos. No, we've never had a baptism like that in all the years that Indian Hills have been in existence. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Period. It is the one true and living God, eternally existing in three persons. 
We are identified with him. Our baptism identifies us with him. Well, then what's all this division? Well, I like so-and-so, and he's my man. I thank God. And Paul then goes on a little sidetrack here, and we want to be careful because it's not that Paul is diminishing the place of baptism, but he's putting it in its proper place. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So that, well, of course, we agree, Christ. Well, then it doesn't matter who baptized you. You were baptized no matter who baptized you in the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, he is the one we are identifying with and the triune God. We identify with Christ, we're identifying with the Father and with the Spirit. So to say, were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? So that'd be ridiculous. Nobody gets baptized in the name of Paul. Well, it says something. We're talking about the unity that we have. The unity, the oneness that binds us together. We're going to have that with coming new senior pastor. Now, it's all right if you're loyal to me. But really, the person who's going to assume this responsibility, be committed to the truths of the word of God. That's what the elders have been looking for and looking into and being sure of and this man of being, being sure. And you sort through those things, but it's, oh, it'll just never be the same without me. Of course it won't be. But then again, God doesn't intend it to be just like it was. So we want to be careful we don't go back and fall under, well, I am of Gil. Well, I am of another pastor in town. Or I'm of another. Uh, if they're doctrinal issues, they need to be dealt with. If they're not doctrinal, get over it. You can have your own opinion. We have different teachers here in this church. Some, well, I really like so-and-so. I appreciate all of them, but I really like so. Well, that's fine. Go to his class. Type of thing. I thank God, verse 14, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one of you would say you were baptized in my name. There's two things that are in play here. One is the issue of salvation and that salvation takes place by faith in Christ alone. Baptism is not part of it. You know, Paul didn't practice baptism himself. Paul will say down in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, if baptism is necessary to salvation. Paul is ignoring something of great importance. Paul and I dearly didn't do the baptism. Two or three that I can think of connected with the church at Corinth But basically, you were baptized by different people, but don't identify with the person you baptized you. The purpose of baptism is what? I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's identifying you with the finished work of Christ and bringing you into a relationship with Christ and his Father and the Holy Spirit, not with the person who's baptizing you. So... Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Verse 13. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul. So faith in Christ brings you salvation, 
Now, the next thing that is to be done is baptism. Now, it doesn't say baptism is not important. It doesn't say it doesn't matter whether you were baptized. He does say it doesn't matter who baptized you. So baptism is a matter of being obedient to Christ as a child of God. You became a child of God through faith in Christ. Paul was careful of not practicing baptism himself, verse 15, so that no one of you would say you were baptized in my name. Because you weren't baptized, it doesn't matter who baptized you. As long as you were being baptized in connection with your faith in Christ. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any. It doesn't matter. He doesn't want to get into, now I baptized this, 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 those for sure. It doesn't matter. If you come up with someone else I didn't include here, fine. The point is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It matters that you're baptized in the name of Christ. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Crucial verse here. You know, there are people who think, and they get their babies baptized, they look at baptism as being the assurance of salvation that cleansed me from my sin, that Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Well, preaching the gospel is not sufficient to bring about the salvation of a soul. Paul was sent on a ministry of futility. Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Now, other people could baptize the people who believed the gospel that I preached. But that's a second step that is distinguished and separate from. Come back to Matthew chapter 28. This is the foundational statement on water baptism. Verse 18 of Matthew 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth and on earth. So all authority be given to Christ by the Father. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. You make disciples. That's preaching the truth. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch in the book of Acts. So a disciple is you make followers of Christ. They become believers in Christ. You make disciples of all nations and you're baptizing them and you're teaching them. You're baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and you're teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So the number one thing is you make them a disciple. Number two, you baptize them and teach them. If you're not baptized... Yeah, you say, well, I'm a believer. Well, just this week, and you haven't had a chance, you're going to be baptized. Well, I, I trusted Christ four years ago. Well, don't you think you need to pay attention and do what the scripture says? Are you a follower of Christ? Are you committed to him? Have you placed your faith in him? 
then you need to be identified with him in water baptism. Well, I don't think baptism makes that much difference. I don't care what you think. When you become a disciple of the one who is the Lord Jesus Christ, he is sovereign. He makes the decision. He is the Lord. He says, go make disciples and then baptize those disciples and then teach them. Well, yeah, I really put an emphasis on teaching. I think good teaching is good. Oh, wait a minute. What about the baptism? We have baptism at the end of the month. I think that one's full, but I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. Is the word clear? To back it up, and we end up then saying, well, we have people saved because they've been baptized and they're being taught. Oh, no, you're saved by grace through faith. So the blending of the two is an undermining, a denying of the truth of the word of God. Come over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, just before 1 Corinthians, the book of Romans, but we're going to the first chapter. And we're going to look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So there is the preaching of the gospel. Hearing and believing the gospel brings salvation. That's it. It's not believing plus being baptized and you're saved. No, it's believing. So you can be here when I say, well, if you say you've been saved four years ago, but you're not baptized. Well, that's a matter of obedience, but that doesn't mean you're not saved. Well, then that's good enough for me. Well, wait a minute. Who's Lord in this whole situation? It's not, well, I'm saved. Now I can become Lord. No, he's Lord. But as far as salvation, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. That's always been true. Salvation is by God's grace through faith, period. Anyone who adds anything else, there are works that result, but they are not the cause. I was saved by grace through faith. The grace of God brought me to the point of recognizing I was a sinner and needed the salvation that Christ had provided by his death on the cross. I believed in him. I was saved for time and eternity. But then I wanted to be careful that I live a life now that is pleasing to him. It was several years. I was 10 when I first believed. And as far as I could tell, that was true. But several years went by before I was baptized. That was fine. Especially for younger people. want to be sure. Well, you're in Romans. Come over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is important because... It uses the example of Abraham. And in Romans, Paul is talking about, is circumcision necessary for salvation? And the Jews said yes, some of the Judaizers. But verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was credited to him, not because of the works he did is the context here, but because of the faith that he had. He believed God. God credited to him as righteousness. Now, 
The question that is asked then through chapter 4 is, was Abraham declared righteous by God before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? And it was before he was circumcised. So circumcision could never be necessary for salvation. It never was in the Old Testament. It was a matter of obedience and circumcision, particularly among Judaizers, for parents. Because you circumcised a male at eight days, he didn't have faith. But the parents were evidencing their faith in what God had promised, and they circumcised him. But circumcision was not part of what was necessary for salvation. That's all of chapter 4, down to verse 22. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Not for his sake only was it credited to him, but for our sake only to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, delivered over because of our transgression, raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, when was Abraham ever baptized? As far as we know, he never was. Well, it wasn't required in the Old Testament circumcision was. Well, when was Abraham declared righteous? Before he was circumcised or after? Well, before. Well, then circumcision wasn't necessary for salvation. Baptism's not necessary for salvation. Now, circumcision become necessary for the Jews because God required it. And those who have placed their faith in Christ now are obedient to him and want to do what he tells them to do. For the Jews, they circumcised their sons at eight days of age. For those now in the church, when we believe in Christ, we personally are baptized as a testimony of our faith. We don't practice baptism here until they're really old enough to make an independent decision without the parents' influence. That doesn't mean they're not saved at 10 or 12 or 13 but they may not, be saved, uh, may not be baptized until they're 18 when they can do it without their parental approval. But come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Christ did not send Paul to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So baptism is not part and possible of the gospel that you have to believe to be saved. And you do the preaching not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Not in cleverness of speech, not in clever speech. Wisdom of words is literally Sophia, wisdom. The wisdom of words. People say, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but you know, I don't talk to people because I'm not good at that. Who said you have to be good at it? How were you saved? I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, trusted him as my savior. Well, now tell somebody else that. If you're going to be saved, you have to place your faith in Jesus Christ and trust him and him alone. Oh, I don't think I could do that. Oh, let's back up again. What did you do? Well, I trusted Christ. I placed my faith in him. All right, now tell somebody else that. That's it. When we begin to embellish the gospel to make it more pleasing to people, we take away the power of the gospel. I was impressed with this again, reading some men. 
And if you sort through everything they say, they have the gospel in there, but it's been canceled out by all the stuff they add to it. But if you put, do you have to believe in, oh yes, yes, I believed in Christ. But their presenting of it is with the wisdom of men and the cross of Christ is made void. It's just thrown in among other things. Made void means to empty, destroy, render void of no effect. When man's wisdom is mixed with the truth of the gospel, it's rendered null and void. It doesn't mean the gospel can't be there. This is the transition the church finds itself making. Well, yeah, we still believe the gospel. We don't preach it, maybe not as clear. But we do wing it in because we want to reach people where they are. So we begin to mix it with the wisdom of men so that it'll be more palatable. And really what we're doing is canceling out the effectiveness of the gospel. The effectiveness of the gospel is its purity, its simplicity. You are a sinner for one for whom Christ died. You must place your faith in him and him alone for salvation, period. There is salvation in no one else and no place else. Christ's death on the cross was to pay the penalty for your sin. It is applied to your account when you place your faith in him alone. You don't have to have a great intellectual bundle because you put that all there and then mix in the gospel and stir it up and you have what? You have a nullified, a gospel that has been made void, made powerless. See the crucial verse on that. So that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Not in the wisdom of speech. It's not, well, you know, when I get clever and I can bring in this and that and the other thing and answer them and what do you want to do? Make the cross of Christ void? It doesn't say they don't mention the cross of Christ anymore. The Judaizers had their council that met in Acts 15. Well, yes, that's all important, but you must also be circumcised. Paul says, no, you cancel the effectiveness of the gospel to bring salvation when you do that. So everyone who's truly saved can tell someone else. Yes, I can tell you what happened to me. I came to realize I was a sinner. Christ died for me. I placed my faith in him alone, not my church, not what somebody else was. I placed my faith in Christ alone as the one who loved me and died for me, and I was saved. If you're truly saved, you can tell someone else that. Oh, we're afraid sometimes of the response that we might get, but we want to be careful. We don't nullify the gospel because we're so clever. Oh, we, we yes, of course, our church still believes the gospel. But then when you go to hear it, it's all mixed in. Verse 18, just to summarize, we'll pick up with this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's the difference. We don't want to look like fools to the world. So we want to dress up the gospel. It'll build your self-esteem and it'll make you more pleased with yourself and it'll do this and that. And We're talking about the death of Christ because the penalty for sin is death. And 
you need to be forgiven to be made new in Christ. That's foolishness to the world. You can't get around it. We're foolish to the world. Christ died for your sins. Well, let's dress this up a little bit. Years ago, I was invited to the high school, the local high school on different occasions to present. When I would present, it was a family course or it was another death and dying course. And I'd just start out, yes, here's what they, but here is the basic issue. Here's why people die. Here's the solution God has provided for death. That is, his son took our place to pay the penalty for our sin. I remember speaking at one of the universities in town. After I was done walking back to the professor's office, he said, I knew what you were talking about. Yes, my parents believed that. I don't believe that anymore. But I knew what you were saying. Christ died for us. I understood that, but I don't believe it. Well, I could say, I pray for you that you will believe it. But at least he was clear. We think, well, we did something. Well, I didn't get to really the gospel, but I was generally, just get to the gospel. Well, then they'll think I'm a fool. Well, then you can say, thank you, Lord, for letting me be a fool for you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for the grace that brought salvation to our hearts. Thank you for those who brought the gospel to us. Lord, we didn't maybe realize what a momentous event that was at the time. But we realize as we look back that it was then that you and grace opened our eyes to see, to believe that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was raised in victory over sin. We, through faith in him, are viewed as having died with him and now raised a new life. Pray for those who are here. Lord, those who come to this church maybe regularly and think coming to this church, listening to sermon, that will be good to get them to glory. I pray that the Spirit will open their eyes, bring conviction, so that they might see and believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And he's the one in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sound Words, a ministry of Indian Hills Community Church. Make sure to download our app from iTunes or Google Play for more messages like the one you just heard. If you would like to contact us, please email soundwords at ihcc.org or give us a call at 402-483-4541.